0: welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm your host, Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the war in Ukraine and how nuclear weapons have enabled Russia to launch this invasion. We also talk about the Iran nuclear negotiations and the possibility of an agreement between Tehran and Washington. My guest today is Tom Colina, Director of Policy at Plowshares Fund here in Washington, D.C., with 30 years of experience in nuclear weapons, missile defense, and non-proliferation issues. Tom is co-author with former Secretary of Defense William Perry of a book called The Button, The New Nuclear Arms Race and Presidential Power from Truman to Trump. He also co-hosts the Plowshares podcast, Press the Button. Tom, welcome to the Iran podcast.
1: Nagar, great to be here. Thanks so much.
0: Great to have you. Let's start with, obviously, the news of the day, the Russia attack on Ukraine and this talk or threat of a nuclear standoff. Um, You wrote a piece uh, recently in the New York Times, an opinion piece about this very issue. Uh, it's an extensive piece. You also discuss uh, the issue of a no-fly zone. And essentially, the title is why America should not deepen its military involvement in Ukraine. Talk about that and why you think America should not deepen its military involvement.
1: Sure. And and, and thanks, Nagar. Um, you know, it's a really, really tough issue as we're all watching, as I'm sure we are, um, the horrific uh, images that, that we're seeing in Ukraine and the, just the tremendous suffering of the Ukrainian people. Uh, and, and we all want to do more. I mean, I know I certainly do. Um, but there are, are things we could do that would actually make it worse. Um, mm-hmm. And one of those things would be to broaden the war uh, to europe uh, and and to all of europe and to and to escalate to nuclear war, because uh, you know as, as bad as things are in Ukraine now they they could get much, much worse, so we always have to be looking out for that, uh, and I think President Biden has done a really good job so far of trying to balance those issues, right on the one hand, he wants to help Ukraine. He wants to end the war, uh, but he wants to make sure it doesn't get any worse than it is. And and so that's where the issue of the no-fly zone came into this, um, where President Zelensky gave a a very powerful appeal to the U.S. Congress in the same way he's been appealing to nations all across the world, uh, seeking support, uh, including a no-fly zone. And, and I think the issue there, and the reason why the U.S. and NATO uh, have rejected that request, is that if you a, a no-fly zone would essentially be U.S. and NATO forces policing the Ukrainian skies and trying to keep uh, Russian jets out, and, and so what that means is it sets up the possibility of uh, the United States shooting down Russian jets, um, shooting uh, at at Russian uh, air defense. Um, installations, um, radar installations all, all the rest, and so what what you wind up with is bringing the the possibility of bringing u s and Russian forces directly in conflict and and that is the scenario um, that could quickly lead to escalation because as soon as you start uh, a, a, even a conventional conflict between the United States, NATO and Russia, where does that end? Um, it could it could escalate into a broader European war. It could escalate into nuclear conflict. Um, so, so that's why I, I wrote that op-ed um, to really sort of uh, help explain why in, in a time where, where as much as we want to help Ukraine as much as possible, there are actually places that we don't want to go um, because we can make the crisis uh, even more of a catastrophe than it already is.
0: And Tom, in your piece, uh, I want to uh, get a little more uh, details from you. You explain that the Soviet Union may have disappeared 30 years ago, but its nuclear weapons did not, and neither did ours. And you talk about what happens if these weapons are used and the consequences that would be horrific. Talk about that. Is Essentially, you say it could mean the end of civilization as we know it. Talk about what that would look like, what you're basically saying should be prevented would look like.
1: Sure. And, and you know, again, one of the reasons I wrote this piece and, and tried to explain it in that way is that I think a lot of people, uh, particularly people under the age of 40 or 45, um, don't remember the Cold War. Uh, they don't. No, I don't. <laughs> right? Don't remember um, the crisis and the concerns that people had about the United States and Russia then the Soviet Union uh, uh, getting involved in nuclear war and 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 how much of an existential threat that was perceived to be and still is today, uh, but people today, because that was so long ago because the Cold War ended thirty years ago, people just aren 't uh, thinking that way anymore, uh, and I think a lot of people thought that with the end of the Cold War. The nuclear danger went away, and the nuclear weapons went away, uh, but unfortunately, they did not. Um, the weapons, although there were significant reductions in the arsenals since the cold War, which is which is welcome and good uh, we didn 't go far enough. Both the United States and Russia still have thousands of nuclear weapons in their arsenals, uh, which is still enough to destroy uh, the world many times. Over And and I don't think what people realize, one, is that we still have that many weapons left and what their destructive potential is. Um, Because when when we say, you know, nuclear weapons pose an existential threat, what that means is that if they're used in quantity uh, of a few hundred or so on major cities in both countries, we're talking about the end of civilization as we know it. Um, you know, hundreds and million, hundreds of millions of, of deaths uh, of casualties um, of radiation uh, widespread around the world. This wouldn't just be the countries that were directly attacked that would be affected because of the spread of radiation. It would be essentially the entire world that would be impacted. Um, you know, it would be complete chaos in terms mm-hmm. of uh, the infrastructure of, of, of civil society. There would be no law enforcement, there would be no hospitals. there would be no one to take care uh, of the of the wounded um you know it is is often said of nuclear war uh that the living would envy the dead because though if you're lucky enough quote unquote to survive a nuclear war, there would be essentially nothing left um, of civilization except except rubble uh and and this is not um a thought that most people are thinking about these days, so I think people mm-hmm. were very uh shocked and, and put into an anxious state when we started hearing uh, threats of nuclear war again in the war uh, in Ukraine. Russia, of course, as everyone knows by now, uh, invaded Ukraine and then started making nuclear threats. Uh, and particularly, it's, it's, it's Russia's threat in this case was to use nuclear weapons first um, to keep other nations out of Ukraine, uh, because Russia did not want the United States or NATO sending troops into Ukraine uh, to protect Ukraine. Russia wanted more of a free hand uh, to invade Ukraine and is using its nuclear forces a- as a cover to do that. So essentially we have a situation uh, where Russia has, has taken Ukraine hostage mm-hmm. with with nuclear threats uh, to keep other nuclear powers out. Um, mm-hmm. And it's working, right? And And this is part of the reason why the Bush administration... I'm sorry, the Biden administration. And NATO don't want to get involved any deeper in Ukraine because of the nuclear threats uh, Mm -hmm. that Russia is making.
0: This is exactly what you also mentioned in your piece. Uh, You wrote that the US nuclear arsenal does nothing for us in this conflict. And I don't think a lot of people are looking at it that way. But uh, you also explained that the arsenal did not keep Mr. Putin out of Ukraine. And in fact, the existence of his nuclear weapons, if anything, helped him enable the war. And then you explain that we must change our attitude toward nuclear weapons and this old way of thinking. So talk about what you think should be done, this change of attitude. How, what should be changed and how should this be seen in a way that is not the old ways of thinking.
1: Sure. I mean, I think a lot of people think um, along the lines that we've been told to think, which is that nuclear weapons keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, nuclear weapons keep us safe, and 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 clearly, in the Ukraine situation, uh, they did not keep the peace. They did not keep Russia out of Ukraine, uh, and in fact, the you know the U.S. nuclear weapons have have essentially no role. In the crisis while russia's nuclear weapons have a very large role in the crisis which as i explained is to to keep the united states um, and nato out of the conflict Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: so we have this you know i wouldn't call it new but uh, a new flavor of of the use of nuclear weapons by a dictator right so here we have a dictator in the name of vladimir putin using his nuclear weapons to hold ukraine hostage and keep everyone else out. It, it, it's a kind of nuclear blackmail. Mm-hmm. And the danger is that if we don't address this, if we don't stop this, if we don't stand up to it, uh, we may see Putin do this again and again. Uh, if, if he has success with this in Ukraine, um, what would stop him from continuing this behavior? And this is the kind of behavior that we're not, luckily, happily not seeing from the West. But it, it you know, works particularly well um, for a dictator, dictator that wants to bully weaker uh, neighbors. So, how do we put a stop to this? Well, well, part of this is to look at the underlying policy um, that countries have, and and what Russia is saying is that we would use nuclear weapons first. We would start nuclear war uh, to keep other nations out of Ukraine. Uh, and so, I think part of what we need to do is build global opposition. To starting nuclear war, to being willing to use nuclear weapons first uh, in a crisis, we've seen a lot of support for for um, ending or or banning the first use of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, other countries support this. Uh, China has a no first use policy. Others do as well. And and so what we're saying is now is the time for the United States if they want to stop this kind of abusive, dangerous policy from Russia, is to build international opposition to what Russia is doing uh, by opposing the first use of nuclear weapons, by saying that no country should be willing to start nuclear war. Uh, Unfortunately, we have a new policy that was just pronounced by the Biden administration uh, that doesn't do that. That basically agrees with Russia's policy. Um, that allows for the first use of nuclear weapons uh, against, uh, say, a, a conventional attack, if it's significant enough, um, if it if it causes extreme threats uh, to the United States, that the United States would see itself as allowed uh, or plausible to use nuclear weapons. Um, In response. So instead of of isolating Russia's policy of of first use, we're essentially matching it. And and that's unfortunate because that undermines, that makes it much harder for uh, the Biden administration to build international opposition to what Russia is doing in Ukraine today.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, at the end, you conclude your piece by saying to reduce Russia's leverage in the future, we must face the fact that nuclear weapons are more useful to Mr. Putin than they are to the West, and that the bomb is a weapon of terror, pure and simple, and we must do all we can to keep it in check. It was an excellent piece. I encourage our listeners to go and read the full piece in the New York Times opinion page. Um, Shifting gears slightly, moving to Iran, which is not unrelated to to all of this discussion. And your organization, Plowshares Fund, works extensively on this issue. I know you work on Iran. You are a supporter of the JCPOA, the Iran deal, and of the revival of of the deal under the the Biden administration. First of all, talk about the latest. Um, that you're hearing where we've seen sort of a stalemate in the past weeks and this final sticking point of the foreign terrorist organization, the designation of the IRGC. But what are you hearing? Where is the deal revival standing at this moment?
1: Well, I, I don't think I'm hearing anything different than what you're hearing, which is that we're still waiting. <laughs> uh, and it's a very frustrating waiting game. Uh where you know, things seem to be going uh, pretty well. Uh, I, th- I think we all thought quite fortunate that, that it, for a while it looked like the deal would get stuck um, uh, as a result of the war in Ukraine and, and Russia making trouble for the deal in the context of the Ukraine war. We seem to have uh, dodged that uh, particular crisis only to be sort of left in limbo where the United States and Iran are still trying to resolve the issue that you talked about uh the foreign uh terrorism designation uh and and so that's it's unfortunate um because you know we want to get on with this we we want to get this deal back in place um this is the best way uh to prevent uh, an iranian nuclear bomb uh it, it's the it's the only option that can actually do that and um you know it it it's it's just unfortunate that that um the fto designation Is really not. uh, It's just not that important. It's symbolic, Um, you know. Mm -hmm. It's something that is is being made uh, a lot of by the opposition to the deal. Uh, But uh, in the end of the day, it's so much more important to revive um, the Iran nuclear deal, to put constraints back on Iran's nuclear program, and avoid what could either be uh, an Iranian bomb Mm -hmm. or or military Mm -hmm. action and a potential uh, war in the Middle East to try to prevent that from happening. So we we really want to see the deal revived as soon as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. There was an interesting piece today in the Washington Post by Glenn Kessler, their fact checker. Um, it's titled, No Biden's New Deal with Iran Won't Involve U.S. Taxpayer Dollars, because there's this constant line repeated out there that the Obama administration gave American tax dollars to Iran billions of dollars of American taxpayers funds to Iran. It was repeated by former President Trump and that the Biden administration is going to repeat that representative Jim Banks uh, recently said on Fox News that Joe, quote unquote, Joe Biden will be the biggest funder of terrorism in the world and American taxpayers are going to be the ones paying for it. And in this piece, essentially, Glenn uh, Kessler explains how these are not American funds. These are Iranian funds that have been blocked Um, because of U.S. sanctions or international sanctions in various banks and accounts around the world, including uh, some funds that are blocked in in South Korea and explains basically the details of how it was done under the Obama administration and how it will be done under the Biden administration. What do you think about this narrative that's put out there by the opponents of the deal, mostly Republicans and a few Democrats and how They're trying to push this line that a no deal situation, essentially what the Trump administration created, is better than than reviving the JCPOA.
1: You know, I I just find this entire situation tremendously frustrating because because the opposition um, knows that they don't have the facts on their side. So they create these false narratives to try to confuse the situation uh, and to build political opposition to the deal. Uh, and this, this financial aspect is one of those. Um, the foreign terrorist designation is another. Uh, all they're trying to do is throw up these various smoke screens so that people don't focus on the real issue, which is the real issue is we're trying to stop an, the development of a nuclear bomb in Iran, and that the Iran nuclear deal, reviving that deal, is the best way to do that. And because they don't want to address that issue, they mm. keep raising these, these other red herrings, these other issues that don't at all uh, rise you know, to to the level of the benefits that the deal would bring. Um, but instead, they just keep raising them in the hopes that they'll create these, these false narratives, these false concerns that will distract people into thinking that the deal is not worth it. When in reality, I mean, the, the, the simple truth is that you know, it's, it's a very unusual situation. We've lived with the Iran nuclear agreement uh, for years under the Obama administration. And then we lived with it for years. Uh, we, then we live without the deal for years, first under the Trump administration and now under the Biden administration. So we can compare life very clearly, life under the deal and life without the deal. And it's very rare in life that you you get to compare two dramatically different situations that you actually had the opportunity to live through. But if we look Mm -hmm. at life where the deal was in force, it was much better than the situation we have now, where when the deal was in force, we had Iran abiding by that deal uh, as verified by the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors. Uh, We had Iran's nuclear program uh, and, and there was a 12-month uh, uh, cushion there where Iran was, was, was kept 12 months away from uh, producing enough nuclear material, highly enriched uranium in this case, uh, to make a bomb. They would still need more time to actually turn that material into a bomb if they chose to do that. But, but under the deal, uh, they were roughly tw- kept 12 months away from having enough uh, enriched uranium for a bomb. Compare that now uh, where we have been uh, without the deal since the Trump administration withdrew in 2018, where where over time Iran has been um, slowly removing the constraints of the deal until the situation now where uh, we're told by um, uh, the US administration and others that Iran is mere weeks away from having enough highly rich uranium uh, for a bomb, were they to choose uh, to move in that direction. So, so compare those two situations where, with the deal, we were about twelve months away uh, from a breakout situation, to now where it's just weeks away. Uh, and and the danger that it raises is that if Iran gets closer and closer and closer to a bomb, there is there is deep concern that that someone, either uh, Israel or some uh, uh, another nation would would decide to move to prevent Iran from taking that action uh, and and therefore could draw us into a military conflict in the Middle East, which I think uh, I would certainly say is the last thing we need right now. so so the case to me is just so clear when you look at life with the deal and life without the deal, that we'd be so much better off with the deal uh, that it's 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 hard to imagine uh, what the opponents of the deal are really. Thinking about other than they're just thinking about it in political terms. They're just trying to score points um, against the Biden administration in a way that is um, very detrimental to U.S. and global security.
0: Mm, and one of the um, arguments we're hearing in the sea, obviously, that is that there's going to be backlash um, to a revival of the deal or essentially any deal, because I personally think that deal critics just don't want any deal. It's there is not one deal um, that would get their endorsement, be it the Republicans were opposed or the uh, few Democrats. But there's this notion that there will be a massive political cost um that the biden administration would have to endure and um we know i just saw actually a quote from dylan williams at j street who works in congress a lot um essentially saying not one democrat who voted for the deal in 2015 lost their seat to someone who opposed the deal in 2016 so there's this fear that there will be a massive political backlash but then that's not really backed up by the polls we're seeing where it seems like the majority of the American people, in fact, do support a diplomatic solution with Iran. So talk about this perception of a massive political cause or a backlash that the opponents are projecting in D.C. and how you think it would be um, in reality if a deal is struck.
1: Well, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think the the American public. Uh, is generally supportive of the Iran nuclear deal, is generally supportive of the United States getting back into the deal, and supports the goal of preventing um, an Iranian nuclear bomb. Now, you know, having said that, politicians are uh, a conservative lot, uh, particularly when they're up for re election. They tend to get very cautious. Um, and so some are indeed uh, worried that. Um, the opposition, in this case, um, uh, you know, f- much more Republican opposition than Democratic opposition, will use this as an issue in the upcoming elections later this year. Um, I, I think that fear is overblown. Uh, I think the deal will uh, survive a congressional vote, uh, which is likely if the deal is, is revived, uh, and that it'll probably be... Similar to the situation, uh, actually, I, I think there'll be an easier time for members of Congress than the situation was in 2005 as you, I'm sorry, 2015, where you correctly say that that none of the members um, that voted for the deal lost their seat as a result um, of that vote. And the reason it'll be easier now is because there's so much more going on in the world now than there was in 2015. In 2015, it was a, it was an odd situation where this issue, the Iran nuclear deal, was getting a huge amount of attention, um, and it it was focused on uh, quite a lot in in congressional races and in Congress. I think this year it's going to be overshadowed by so many other things that are going that are going on, whether it be COVID. Uh, or the war in ukraine or or so many other things and and people will be um really quite relieved to have a deal that prevents yet another crisis uh this one over nuclear weapons in the middle East so yes, I mean, I think members of Congress will always be concerned they'll always be uh skittish about issues that 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 they think that the other party uh might have an upper hand on, but in this case, I think Um, they just need to get on with it. Uh, because you said in a, in an article that was published, uh, today that the administration just needs to understand that there's going to be some political blowback from the opposition when the deal is done. Uh, the administration, the Biden administration that is, is going to have to get up and, and defend the deal. Uh, there will be, you know, some, uh, political, uh, uh, pain to that as they, as they sort of attract uh, an attack that will be coming from the Republicans. But at the end of the day, it's worth it uh, because uh, the deal is tremendously important to U.S. and global security. And the political fallout will simply not be uh, as great as people are, are worried it will be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I said this to Al Jazeera. I compared it to ripping a bandaid. It's essentially it's going to hurt for a second, but you just have to do it and then you'll be you'll be fine after, just as you explain. I think the the... Backlash is overblown in DC. What about uh, critics of the deal outside the U.S.? We know under the Obama administration, the JCPOA had very powerful opponents in the region, from former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to U.S. partners in the Persian Gulf, mainly Saudi Arabia and the UAE. How strong do you think that opposition? To the deal is going to be from those parties. We know Israel has a new government. And we've also seen some outreach between the Biden administration and their partners, especially Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Do you see a difference in that dynamic compared to the Obama time?
1: I, I do. Uh, you know, when um, Netanyahu was prime minister of Israel, he was, you know, so opposed. Uh, to to the iran nuclear deal i mean if people remember he actually came to the united states um not invited by president obama and gave uh, a tremendously negative speech to congress um opposing the iran nuclear deal i mean unprecedented um and and insulting uh i would say opposition coming from from israel um now the new israeli government excuse me um also opposes the Iran nuclear deal, but not anywhere as near as as uh, as as intensely as loudly as Netanyahu did. So, so I don't think we're going to see um, you know the kind of opposition coming from Israel that we did in uh, in 2015. And not only that, but but we're starting to hear from um, the security establishment in Israel who is quite uh, supportive of the deal and thinks it was quite a huge mistake by the Trump administration to withdraw, uh, and, that, and that many in the security establishment in Israel seeing the Iran deal as the best way forward um, to prevent um, a nuclear Iran. So, so no, I don't think the international opinion will be as much of a factor um, as it was uh, the last time around in 2015. And, and in fact, you know, the international factor, Israel in particular, um, ultimately did did not sway uh, the deal from going forward and from being approved um, by the Obama administration. Um, I think Israel did have a real impact on President Trump withdrawing from the deal, which as as, uh, many of us see now was just a tragic, tragic mistake. Uh, But I don't think we'll see Israel preventing um, the Biden administration from reviving the deal if it can. Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, Tom, what about those who sort of trying to be the devil's advocate, but those who claim that the deal, a deal is good, but that this is not a good deal. They used to say it back in the Obama time to the JCPOA and now about the revival. I believe even Senator Menendez said this in the Senate floor that he is looking um, for a deal that's better, that's stronger, more comprehensive, or longer, there's been all kinds of criticisms at the JCPOA. What do you say to that? To those who say we want a deal, but we just want a better deal, and this is not a good one.
1: Well, I would say that you know the Trump administration tried that, right? They they withdrew mm-hmm. from the deal, um, making the argument that they were going to pursue a maximum pressure campaign. Uh, of sanctions on Iran to drive Iran back to the negotiating table to negotiate a better deal. And guess what? It didn't work. Iran said, no way. Uh, instead of coming back to the table, uh, we're just going to revive our nuclear program, uh, which after waiting a respectful amount of time, about a year, um, they did. And, and now you know we're much closer to a bomb in Iran than we were when the deal was in force. So I would say, you know, sure, people can wish for whatever they want, but they have to be practical. We have an excellent, excellent deal on the table uh, that will uh, restrain Iran's nuclear program and uh, and 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 verify that with an inspection regime that is historic and unprecedented in its intrusiveness. Um, we need to see the value in that deal. And not think that there's some better unicorn deal um, out there because it, it's unless you can get both sides to sit down at the table and agree to it, um, there is no such deal. So I think in this case, uh, we cannot make, um, you know, the perfect, the enemy of the good. Uh, in this case, I think the deal that we've got with Iran is better than good. I think it's great. Um, and if we are lucky enough to be able to get back in that deal, we need to grab that as soon as we can.
0: mm mm-hmm. And uh, looking to the future, Tom, we know the president has said that he's interested to, uh, you know, do follow-on negotiations with Iran about other issues beyond just the nuclear program, which is the priority right now, but on regional uh, policies and the missile program and all of that. And the Iranian side also has their own concerns. I've uh, interviewed the Iranian foreign minister, and I asked him about this issue of regional policy and the missile program. And he said, we're concerned about the amount of weapons that's sold to our, our rivals in the region. Is that something that's going to be up for negotiation at the table? If if there is, then we may be considering uh, discussing these issues. What do you think the Biden administration can and should do after they have revived the JCPOA or made a nuclear deal and basically essentially dealt with the nuclear program beyond that?
1: Well, I think, I think the first point to make is that you can't get on to those other issues until you revive um, the Iran nuclear deal uh, as it is with Iran. Um, exactly. There, there's, <laughs> there's, no, there's no Iran deal two until you get back to uh, Iran deal one. So mm-hmm. so, let's get that done. And then you can think about the other things um, like Iran's uh, proxy activities in the region, uh, Iran's missile program, um, and all the rest. And, uh, you know, that's going to be a tough negotiation. So the question is, sure, the United States has things it wants from Iran. What is the United States willing to give to Iran to get those things, I, I never hear about that side of the of the question. All we hear about mm-hmm. is what the United States uh, additional things that the United States wants from Iran. But I, I would say, as as serious as all those issues are, you know, terrorism in the region, uh, Iran's ballistic missile program, none of those to me are are as important a security concern as Iran's nuclear program. So let's solve the big issue first. Let's Let's move uh, Iran further away from the bomb than they are now. Let's, let's buy ourselves years of, of assurances that Iran is not going to develop that potential anytime soon. Uh, and then once we've gotten back into that situation, then we can see if Iran is willing to sit down at the table and negotiate more. Because look, there's a lot of trust to be rebuilt here. The reason why getting back into this deal has taken almost a year now uh, is because the Trump administration destroyed even the tenuous level of trust that had been built up by the Obama administration uh, by the fact that the Trump administration so unceremoniously pulled out from the deal and then started – You know, heaping sanctions back on Iran. So we're starting at a huge trust deficit. If we can get back into this deal uh, and then start building some trust towards a future deal, uh, that would be huge, but one step at a time.
0: Mm -hmm. And Tom, finally, I want to ask you about the U.S. Special Envoy, Rob Madley. There was an extensive campaign. Um, against him by essentially critics of the deal when he was first appointed to the job. I think he's an excellent person for the job. There were also statements of support. I believe you signed um, one of one of those letters in support of Rob Malley. Talk about him, the basically the signal that the Biden administration sent by mm, choosing someone like him for this um, job and how you think he's going to essentially deliver if um, this nuclear deal?
1: Well, I think Rob Malley was a fantastic choice by the Biden administration to, to lead this effort. I can't think of anyone more qualified uh, and, and better prepared to do this, given the experience he had previously in the Obama administration working on the Iran nuclear file. Uh, I think the Biden administration choosing him was a was a sign of uh, of brilliance and and serious commitment to the cause. Uh, he, when when they when they appointed Malley, everyone knew that, that the Biden administration was going to take this seriously. And, and, I, and I think they have. Um, and I think uh, Rob Malley has has managed the negotiations in a professional, stable uh, and, um, uh, and, and and measured way. Um, I I don't think there's anybody better for the job uh than him. And if if ultimately it doesn't succeed, uh, I don't think it's it's his fault. Uh I think it that just shows how difficult the job, um, the job was. But I, I don't want to get pessimistic. I think there's still a chance that we will get this deal. I certainly hope that we do in the next few weeks here. Uh and 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 if we do, um, a big reason for that will be the the hard uh, and tireless work of, of Rob Malley pulling all the pieces together.
0: Mm-hmm. And finally, I hate to end it. Uh, I'd like to end on a positive note, but I just want to ask you sort of to reiterate what you think would happen if this deal is not done, if there is no agreement. What would uh, the future look like without the deal, which is essentially the reason why you're pushing so much for a deal?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, if, if we don't get this deal, um, I'm I'm hopeful that we will keep uh, the hope of diplomacy alive because there are other diplomatic options other than the Iran nuclear deal the JcpoA um, if if we can't get this deal then I hope we can we can get some other you know less for less if you will type deal that that keeps uh, diplomacy alive. Uh, and and keeps Iran a certain distance away from developing a nuclear weapon. Because if we lose all the diplomatic options um, and Iran's program becomes essentially unconstrained, and then you could imagine that Iran would start restricting the international inspections of its program, we could be in a very dangerous situation where Iran is very close to a bomb and we lose insight Uh, and transparency into what Iran is doing. Uh, And in that situation, you can imagine pressure building both in Israel uh, and here in the United States to conduct some kind of military action. And and I I think the Biden administration will resist that very much. I'm not so sure about uh, the government of Israel, but you can imagine some, some combination of factors of tensions rising Uh, and of military action happening to try to restrain Iran's nuclear program that could turn uh, into full-fledged war in the Middle East that would be um, just catastrophic. Uh, I think if people think about the disaster of the Iraq war for the world and for the United States, um, a major war with Iran would be much, much worse uh, and something that we should all be striving to avoid, particularly at a time – where we're dealing with the crisis uh in ukraine uh and and that this is this is the last time <laughs> i think in the, this is this is cer- certainly something that no one should want to see um at, while we're trying to to deal with the ukraine crisis that we want we want a crisis of this magnitude in the middle east and and the thing about it is is that we have a solution to all of this and and that solution is reviving the Iran nuclear deal now. You know, we still may not get there. Uh, we, we still may not be able to bring the United States and Iran uh, into agreement on that. Uh, but the fact that there's so much opposition to it here in the United States um, and in Israel um, is really mind-boggling when you think of the stakes um, that that are are at play here. How important this deal is. Um, the the simply awful consequences of not getting this deal. Uh, that we need everyone pulling in the same direction. Let's all be hoping for this deal. Let's all be working for this deal. Uh, And if we are lucky enough to get the United States and Iran to agree to revive the deal, we should be supporting that wholeheartedly.
0: Mm -hmm. As you said, let's not let perfect be the enemy of good when it comes to this deal. Tom, thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here.
0: That was Tom Colina, Director of Policy at Plowshares Fund here in Washington, D.C. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.